Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're continuing with the French theme. We've done an episode on Althusser and Foucault, and this time we're going to do an episode on Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari. And I'm going to pronounce those, you know, the way that I pronounce stuff. So Deleuze and Guattari collaborate in the aftermath of the events of 1968. Now, if you're not familiar with what went down in France in 1968, we had a bunch of civil unrest. That unrest ultimately culminated in a parliamentary and electoralist solution, de Gaulle called a general election. The French Communist Party supported de Gaulle in calling for a general election. And for Deleuze and Guattari, this electoralism was a betrayal that revealed the limits of the Communist Party's commitment to revolution. It was too invested in winning state power for itself through elections and too insistent upon its own leadership refusing to allow for a bottom-up movement that it did not control to sweep away the Fifth Republic. And this, I think, motivates their collaboration. They come together, they meet in 1969, immediately after this has happened. Now, how do they respond to this situation? Well, they respond to this situation by breaking with Lacan, the psychoanalyst, uh, psychoanalyst Lacan, Lacan problematized desire. For Lacan, we desire the things we desire because they th we think they will make us whole. But if we actually get the things we think we want, they won't actually satisfy us. This is because our sense of lack is fundamentally baked into us. It's part of what we are. So if we come to understand this, it won't free us from desire because we are still fundamentally incomplete, but it will make our desire more manageable. Lacan is in this respect similar to most ancient and medieval theorists, insofar as for Lacan, our objective is to manage the desires that stem from embodiment, that stem from separation from the universal, from God, to rule ourselves so that we might be more discerning about what goals and objectives we pursue. Right? Now, Deleuze and Guattari break with Lacan by instead taking the side of desire. They argue that desire is baked into reality, not insofar as we are all lacking subjects struggling for a sense of wholeness and completeness that can never be ours, but insofar as everything in the universe is libidinal energy. And this libidinal energy is creative and should not be managed. So theirs is, is more like a Nietzschean will to power. This, this will should be affirmed and not repressed or restrained. Deleuze actually wrote the first major work in French defending Nietzsche after World War II. Prior to Nietzsche, uh, to, excuse me, prior to Deleuze's intervention, Nietzsche was widely regarded in France as a fascist, and there was very little interest in Nietzsche. But Deleuze helped to rehabilitate Nietzsche and make Nietzsche a figure that you could talk about in post-war France. So I would put Deleuze and Guattari firmly in the agonist camp with theorists like Nietzsche. For them, politics is about struggle and change for its own sake, rather than about trying to realize some further value through this struggle. So this, of course, lends itself to a critique of the post-war managerial state, right? For Deleuze and Guattari, the post-war managerial state exists to repress libidinal energy, even as capitalism cultivates and develops that energy. So the mechanism of private property cultivates and develops desire, but at the same time, it sets limits on it that prevent it from fully manifesting. In this way, capitalism develops and then fetters the development, not merely of, say, the productive forces in a Marxist sense, but of desire itself. Capitalism develops the productive forces by deterritorializing them. In primitive societies, production is ascribed to the land or to the ruler. The land produces this, or the ruler has produced this situation. But capitalism breaks the connection between production and particular territories or bodies by treating capital and labor as abstract flows. 
The state, through the system of private property, tries to re-territorialize these flows by assigning what is produced to particular people. These persons have both a public aspect, they're either capitalists or workers, and they have a private aspect, they're members of families. So what the state does is it will suggest that this stuff that is really being produced by these deterritorialized flows is in fact being produced by particular people, by particular capitalists, by particular workers, by particular members of families, by persons. It tries to personalize a system that is thoroughgoingly impersonal, right? It's not as if, say, Elon Musk creates the Tesla car, but we act as if this is the case. And Elon Musk has a bunch of wealth, which is meant to, to show because he has this private property that it's him. He has done this. He's the one, right? This, this attempt to territorialize something that is a irreducibly social phenomena that's the result of flows of money, flows, incentives uh, that move capital from place to place, that move workers and laborers from place to place, that attract things. That's ultimately what gives you those electric cars, not one particular person or one particular uh, you know, place. You know, the Tesla factory might be located in a specific place, but it's not that that place is, is in some way the kind of place in which uh, Tesla can thrive fundamentally. On this theory, this stuff comes out of movement rather than out of things that are stationary. But because movement is difficult to grasp, difficult to cognize, we have a tendency to try to erase the sense in which everything is changing movement and to lock stuff down and to attach stuff to particular people, places, and conditions, right? So for these guys, destroying the managerial state and the system of private property and the family would abolish the person, freeing libidinal desire from the shackles of these concepts. Now, most of the collaboration between Deleuze and Guattari takes place before the 80s. It takes place in the 70s. And there is the, the last book, What is Philosophy, comes out in 1991. But the bulk of the material takes place before the 80s and before, say, the neoliberal turn in political economy. So it is not a description of, say, the deregulation of the market in the 80s, but in some ways it anticipates those changes. So, of course, in the 1980s, we get a deregulation of lots of different parts of the economy with the state reducing the degree to which it is uh, directly involved in managing the economy. And that, to some degree, breaks down these structures. But the state guides this deregulation. It slows it, it prevents it from being total, it directs it. It's not as if during the 80s, the managerial state goes away. The managerial state changes its emphasis, changes its techniques and style. It doesn't vanish. That said, you could frame Deleuze and Guattari as, as being interested in accelerating and extending this deregulation into additional areas for turning everything over to flows and to libidinal desire without mediation by traditional constraining structures. Along similar lines, for Deleuze and Guattari, the function of philosophy is to explore new possibilities, ways things may develop or evolve in a way that deterritorializes ideas, that breaks them out of the rigid conceptual schemas we ordinarily use to ground and make sense of our world. For these guys, philosophy is not about trying to return to something old and universal, but about setting creative energy free. They contrast philosophy with science, which for them is about exploring why one particular path is taken. Science is therefore about laying out how re-territorialization works, about exploring how existing systems function within a delimited plane of reference. History, even the history of philosophy, is more science than philosophy, insofar as the history of thought organizes existing concepts instead of developing new ones. That said, in practice, Deleuze often begins his work with reflections on the history of thought and on particular people who came before him. So I would caution you about overreading that distinction. They also contrast philosophy with art, which for them is about creating a sensation that disrupts our habits and patterns. So rather than about concepts, art is about sensation. Now Deleuze in particular, 
goes after Plato on the grounds that Plato often classifies things that are different from his ideals as inferior deviations. So for Plato, we have multiple levels of alienation from the good. We have forms of specific things, e.g. the idea of the good chair, the things themselves, for instance, physical chairs, and artistic representations of things, like paintings of chairs. The more removed we are from the good, the further removed we are from what is real. And therefore, the good is more real than the idea of the good chair, which is more real than the physical chair, which is more real than the artistic depiction of a chair. So you get this hierarchy of reality. Deleuze hopes to disrupt this by suggesting that each of these things might be considered on its own terms rather than in relation to the others. That a painting of a chair might be considered as a painting, as art, rather than as a representation of a chair evaluated in terms of the sensations it generates or fails to generate, rather than in terms of whether it faithfully depicts a chair. And that, I think, is really gets at what is fundamentally different here. So the same goes for politics. While for a Platonist, a city riddled with ungoverned desires has deviated from the ideal city and thereby from the good itself, for Deleuze, this polity can be evaluated in its own terms rather than subordinated to Plato's philosophical schema. And even this seemingly bad polity can generate philosophy insofar as it can generate new concepts. Because Deleuze is mainly concerned with creativity and with the generating of new things, he doesn't really care whether these new things are good or bad in Plato's sense of those terms. Rather, he, like Nietzsche, regards this good and bad as a platonic straitjacket, a way of territorializing thought that limits what we can create. So we've done a few episodes in the past. You'd have to go back a little while to find these. But we've done an episode, I believe, on Nietzsche. We've talked a little bit about agonistic political theory. This is a ways back. But uh, I do think that agonism is a fundamentally different way of approaching politics from the way uh, where you're trying to pursue the good or some common good or the national interest or the good of the state, raison d'etat, if you are focused on conflict for its own sake rather than conflict as a means of, of getting somewhere else, this produces a politics that is, is much less rooted and much less locked down and unstable. But that instability is not a problem if you are someone who values agonism for its own sake. So a lot of the things that you might say critical about this if you approach politics from, say, a Habesian standpoint, very interested in order, or a Platonic standpoint, very interested in the good, are just not going to really have much effect on someone who is an agonist because an agonist likes change and therefore doesn't like uh, trying to create peace, trying to create stability, trying to create order. Uh, if you value change for its own sake, then all of the complaints somebody makes about how, well, but how does this allow us to have good order, uh, don't really have an effect. They bounce off a person with this kind of attitude. And so oftentimes when we start trying to put agonists in conversation with theorists interested in order or theorists interested in the good, it's it's very difficult to even have a discussion because the orientations are so fundamentally different, so fundamentally distinct. A lot of the time we do, you know, sometimes I'll talk about like Hobbes versus Gandhi, right? So Hobbes is someone who's very interested in order and thinks that we su should subordinate what we value to get order, to get peace, to get stability. And Gandhi is someone who is willing to die for what he thinks is good, is willing to be killed, and in fact was killed for what he thinks is good. But he's... Uh, you know, therefore, willing to die and willing to have instability and chaos so that he can uh, stand up for what he values and what he thinks is good. With Deleuze and Guattari, you really have a, a third position that isn't like Gandhi and isn't like Hobbes, where you're neither valuing the values nor are you valuing order. You are valuing change and flux. So the normative emphasis here is is on flux itself rather than on something concrete or specific, either a specific state of affairs that you might maintain or preserve or some value specifically that you might be trying to bring into being. 
Does all of that make sense, Alex? What did you think in looking at these texts? Well, that, it doesn't mean there's no normativity at all, right? Because you want to do ethics, just not morality, which is defined in his specific sense. That's not a general definition of the two. Yeah, there's normativity, but the normativity is, is placing value on change. So if you try to lock the normativity down into a set of concepts, if you try to go, okay, well, let's talk about what's good then, and then try to apply that, uh, that for them stifles the normative exploration and the constant generation of new values, right? Nietzsche was very much about, say, a set of philosophers of the future generating new values that are different and distinct from the values that have gone before. And then you can look at reality through those new values. For Nietzsche, what was frustrating about Plato is that in you know, setting things up in terms of good and bad, Plato created a, a, an evaluative conceptual landscape that uh, locks us into thinking about values through the lens of what, whether they contribute to the good, right? Or whether they are good or what their relationship is to the good. And so what Nietzsche hoped to do was get outside of beyond good and evil and talk about other kinds of values that were new, that were invented. Now, if you say, well, what justifies those values? Why should we want those values? What's good about them? Now you're back in, in the platonic terrain. So it becomes very difficult to criticize this kind of project without exiting it so fundamentally that there's no real possibility of conversation. They'll still use concepts like goodness and desire and becoming minoritarianism, uh, you know. So you still assess things in terms of do they increase other people's power to act in a way that doesn't limit others? Otherwise, well, it's life-denying. He uses that word too. So, yes. Yeah. So, of course, one of the critiques that you can make about Nietzsche is in placing value on flux and on conflict or change. Isn't that itself suggesting that these things are good? Now, the point of resistance will be, oh, no, you're trapping me in that conceptual scheme I don't want to be in. But it's, it seems difficult to talk about valuing things without saying that we think on some level that they're good. So this is why Nietzsche regards Plato as a genius. Nietzsche says that Plato has completely ensnared us in this conceptual scheme, and we're not really able to get out from under it. Even if we lose our metaphysical belief in God, we still live under God's shadow. We're still stuck in a kind of platonic scheme where good and evil are what we talk about. Uh, but conversely, you know, it might be the case, if we are willing to entertain the possibility that you know, Plato might be uh, right, that when we try to think about normative values, we can't help but invoke something like the concept of the good. But this is the thing. If you buy that idea, it makes it very difficult to go where Nietzsche wants you to go. And if you don't buy that idea, then it makes it very difficult not to go where Nietzsche wants you to go. This is a, a first principle issue when we start talking about Plato versus agonism, that is very difficult to bridge or to uh, balance. They're just very different ways of looking at the world. Is that why there's this confusing idea of transcendental empiricism? So you, you, what you can understand comes from the sensible world, but that experience has to rest on something that's logically necessary, but it's not like the normal transcendentalism where that's something higher up above it's actually inside experience even though you can't access it through experience so it's both virtual outside yet inside it's very weird yeah the the way that Deleuze and Guattari relate to empiricism is interesting for one they tend to make a lot of theorists like you know, for instance Spinoza out to be more empirical than they are typically understood to be or Nietzsche you know out to be more empirical than they're typically understood to be some of this is because for them, the way that we come up with concepts involves necessarily interacting with a world outside ourselves with physical stuff out there in the world. And this is, I think, some of the Marxist emphasis, right? The way that we think about production has a lot to do with the way that we produce, the way we interact with the natural world. And so our concepts are going to be rooted in some way in empirical experience. At the same time, the emphasis on, say, 
deterritorializing, you can take that in a direction that makes it feel anti-empirical. If you abstract about these flows too much and you become unrooted in uh, the mode of production and forces of production that give rise to the this experience of flows. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's a mistake that they make, but it, it becomes a difficult thing when you're trying to read a text like this. You know, is detorialization something that even affects, say, our level of com commitment to empiricism? Are these flows, you know, something to be abstracted away. I don't think that is where this, this goes, but you could imagine someone reading this text who might take it in that kind of direction. And I think that's why for Deleuze and Guattari, it's important to emphasize that this is meant to be understood in an empirical way. Deterritorialization does not mean that we now have flows that are completely abstract, that have nothing to do with outside reality. It is rather that this is a way of conceptualizing, thinking about what goes on that is in some way constructive. And then it re-territorializes. So there's no dualism between D and re-territorialization. Maybe that explains. Well, yeah, there is generally an effort to re-territorialize. But it seems that for Deleuze and Guattari, what is emancipatory about going through the stage of capitalism is that there is less territorialization than there was at earlier points at earlier stages of production. So if we were to get through to cap through capitalism and on to something else, the something else would more fully deterritorialize than capitalism does. That's not to say that there would be no re-territorialization at all, but over time there's less deterritorialization than before. And this would be, I think, if we were to read these guys in a more of a progress narrative sense, if there's a progress narrative here, the progress narrative is that as the forces of production develop, as the mode of production develops, the amount of territorialization that can be sustained is reduced. And there is an increased emphasis on flows and a reduced emphasis on particular people. And for this reason, you can read a kind of panpsychism into this. You can suggest that ultimately what will happen is that we will completely lose our sense of self-other distinction because everything will be uh, understood increasingly as flows and flux and change and not as particular people doing things or particular entities uh, acting that have essences that are fixed. If there's more and more change and the change is more and more rapid, our way of understanding what goes on will be more oriented in change and less oriented in fixedness. So as capitalism accelerates and things change faster and faster and faster, we would be less and less inclined to think in terms of stationary concepts and therefore less and less inclined to territorialize. So these changes in material conditions would lead us to deterritorialize more and more thoroughly with less and less re-territorialization necessary. And that would be what would be ostensibly emancipatory about continuing on with capitalism and then on to the next stage of production. Can you see how a conservative might see this as, especially the psychoanalysis stuff, very degenerate almost? Oh yeah. Of course. We've done a lot of old stuff, uh, in part, you know, so that we have the whole picture of how people look at these things. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, me personally, I, I have always been interested in doing some kind of dialogue between, you know, order and, and value. I'm not an agonist in this sense. I find agonism interesting. It's part of you know the, the whole landscape of political theory. We need to engage with it and, and think about it and recognize that there are many people in the world who think in this kind of way. Uh, it, it poses a problem for someone who is in the kind of you know, order versus what we value framework that I'm often in. Uh, straight agonism is a very disruptive way of thinking. And I can see how a conservative, uh, who is very rooted in order or in a particular notion of God would just regard it as satanic. 
because especially say if you're trying to get past capitalism and you want to continue this decoding, so not restricting all the flows like society usually does. So I guess they say you remove capital from the market so you can produce difference to infinity. But I'm just thinking concretely what that means is you don't have separate beings and separate kind of activities, which only make sense in certain contexts. They give the example of sexuality, meals. Um, they've always meant something in only one context, but I guess if it's completely liberated, then there's so many, or there's a multiplicity of ways you could understand that. It's very like, it's just unstable, isn't it? People can yes, do, do what they like. there's a certain accelerationism to this. And yeah, I, some of it gets paired up with, with things like transhumanism and with the idea that we can be completely... Uh, get completely out of the body and that uh, therefore we won't be stuck in the kind of psychoanalytic concep conceptions that come from being physical human bodies, that we could eventually relate to physical matter in completely different ways through completely rearranging the things that exist through advanced science and advanced uh, learning. At that point, you get into a science fiction territory. But part of what I think excited people in the 80s and 90s about this work is that it seemed to be a way of thinking about the implications of sci-fi, you know, a sci-fi universe where there's very, very rapid technological change. A lot of the time in the 60s, when people imagine science fiction, they would imagine some world where there's a bunch of future technology. But outside of that, for the most part, there wasn't a whole lot of change in cultural values, in political systems. If you go back and watch a show like the Jetsons, they have flying cars, they have all sorts of you know, robots and sophisticated technology, but they relate to each other in an entirely 50s and 60s sort of way, in a, a way that is not at all innovative or distinctive at all. As you start to move into the, the 70s and the 80s, there's a greater emphasis in sci-fi on changes, not just in what kind of technology we have, but in how this technology invites us to think. And not just that the specific pieces of technology would invite us to think differently. People often will think, oh, you know, how did the cell phone change the way that we think? But the rate of technological change, if there's a very, very high rate of technological change, the fact that there's so much change itself would invite us to think differently. In much the same way that the Industrial Revolution by encompassing a faster rate of change than you saw, say, in the ancient or medieval periods, in and of itself invites us to think more in terms of progress than in terms of stasis or in terms of cyclical theories of history. It invites us to think more in terms of change. So if you think that there's going to be this cyber revolution, right, uh, and that things are going to rapidly, rapidly change. We have all this talk now about AI. If you really buy this and you think, well, there's going to be this explosion of AI and, and everything's going to become very different and we're going to merge with the machines. You know, some people think that we're going to stop being human beings and we're going to become one with the computer, right? At that point, that would fundamentally change what we are in ways that would result in completely different ideas. Now, if you have a more conservative attitude to this, you would say, well, this involves you know, fundamentally destroying the things that exist and uh, replacing them with other things that are uh, the products of hubris or pride that are even more deviant and even more desire-oriented or libidinally-oriented uh, than the kinds of bodies that we may presently have. You could think about it all like that. You might also think that all of this is uh, an excessive optimism about technological change and progress, that this is a kind of artifact of 20th century thinking about computers and the internet and thinking about cybernetics and uh, a projection of the amount of change that occurred, say, between 1920 and, and the year 2000 into the future indefinitely. And that you know, if you look at the 21st century, maybe there isn't as much change or, or as much technological movement as might be expected. I think that uh, in the 80s and 90s, it was felt that things were changing very rapidly, and it was assumed that things in the future would, if anything, only change more rapidly than they had been changing, uh, that they would change at least as fast, if not faster. Our experience today is maybe not precisely the same. And so we might not be as inclined to think of things as moving so fast. I think part of the reason why we have uh, 
a kind of resurfacing of conservative attitudes on a lot of different issues is that there is this feeling that things are are not changing that quickly, that there's disruption in people's lives, but this disruption is uh, not so rapid, uh, that it's not giving rise to new forms or new creative uh, ideas about what to do, but is instead a kind of slow grinding down of what we had without a replacement. And so that leads to a lot of uh, people looking to return to a time when these concepts felt more vital or more real. Since there's this absence of new. Uh, I, I think that would be probably the biggest thing that the 2020s, that the, the lack of new ideas and ways of thinking and being would be the ultimate indictment if you were to indict the last 50 years and the particular changes that people have made. The ultimate indictment would be all of this new that was supposed to come. If we look at the realm of ideas, we don't have a ton of new. You know, you know the, the molar, the molecular, the line of flight, three different ways of thinking about change or freedom. And I think the yeah. idea is that even though, so molar is like very fixed, molecular is fluid and line of flight is completely change your identity and what you used to want, you're no longer allowed to get or whatever. Um, so even if something is very, they, they talk about if something's very fixed uh, and you can't see a line of flight out of it, there's still, it's still likely to, to arise at some point. So it's not like they're always expecting things to change because they're writing about expecting structures to be very, you know, fixed. So, yeah. Yeah. In the 70s, there, there was, I think, uh, a sense that things needed to change, but also until they did finally break through and change, a, a question about whether this change would come or what form it would take. Uh, and in the discussion I was just having, I'm not really trying to uh, suggest that Deleuze and Guattari had a particular view about exactly how fast things would change, but that part of what makes this view exciting Part of what made it catch to the degree that it did was this, this feeling that things were changing quickly, that deterritorializing was going on at scale. And I think some of that was, was fueled by the deregulation in the 80s. And this marketization, the sense that things are being turned over to the market, that the bureaucratic state was getting out of the way. Ultimately, the bureaucratic state did not get out of the way to the degree that it was assumed that it, it did or it would. And uh, the effects of it getting out of the way were much more mixed than I think a lot of people in the 70s and 80s hoped or assumed they would be. Can you see us becoming kind of fascistic? Either in... In what sense? Well, usually you speak about it as people having some kind of fixed essence to the nation. I think they talk about it more in terms of either a lunar fascism, which is too slow, or a solar fascism, which is too fast. So I guess we're in the too slow one because it's all about creating new codes to replace the decoding of capitalism. So fix subjects into a kind of a boundary position. And yeah, the, the, the one that's too fast would be basically everyone, it's like a cancer. Everyone becomes judge, jury, executioner. So neighborhood policemen. And yeah, it feeds off this society of a, a mass production line and destroys it because I think... A, everyone is like complete onto themselves and has so much power to do away with one another. Yes, it's a little bit like the French Revolutionary Terror, uh, mm. where there's you know, everybody's kind of watching everybody and everybody's going after everybody. Things are changing so fast that nobody really has a frame of reference. Nobody's really sure what's going on. The concepts that are being deployed don't have definitions that are clear. And maybe a too slow where there is a kind of grinding down of meaning, but the grinding down is happening without uh, any, any replacement. There's a sense of stasis. There's a sense that things aren't moving and need to move. I would say that what we have now probably looks more like that than like, say, the French Revolution. That uh, what we have now has this kind of grinding character to it. But if you talk to someone who is really passionate about, say, AI research, they might have a very different view and they might think that there is really rapid change that's coming and it's coming in our lifetimes. And maybe it's been happening all around us and we're not, we're just not appropriately noticing it or appreciating it. 
There's often been a tendency in the last 20 years to, to suggest that politics needs to catch up to science or technology. I think if it, if it needed to catch up, it, it would. If there were implications, if the tech had implications that were strong enough that they created new ideas in people, then that's just what would happen. They would create new ideas in people and people would get new ideas about how to do things. That isn't generally, I think, what's happened. If we look at contemporary political theory, it's very stuck. But a lot of people would say, what new ideas do you need aside from... Usually when people talk about new ideas, they talk about revamping 50s and 60s stuff, as opposed to going into some kind of feudal, techno-feudalism. Yeah, there's a lot of relitigating. There's a lot of relitigating, say, the period around World War One or the period after World War Two. There's a lot of relitigating going on, which suggests that people think that the world that we're in is not that different from that world. I think it is different, uh, more so than people who would make, you know, say, comparisons between the United States today and the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany or you know, pick your, your example. Yeah. More so than those people would think. I think the United States today is different from those 20th century states in ways that are important. But... It is not the case that most people are thinking about it as different. That still seems to be a minority position. Uh, if you look around at people trying to explain what's going on with American democracy today, people love to use historical examples and compare it to 20th century states. They do it all the time. So I think if, if we were having very rapid change, we would get more ideas about how it's different and more creative new interpretations. But we've got, we've got people saying, oh, what's really going on is that we're still litigating the Civil War. I don't get that. Uh, yeah, the American Civil War, the idea that we're still engaged in a kind of uh, reckon, reckoning with the racial consequences of the American Civil War. Well, because people aren't equal yet or not. Yes, and framing this mainly in racial terms and framing it mainly as you know, there's a kind of original sin at the beginning of American history that still needs to be dealt with or expunged, that frames our current crisis as very much rooted in history. I think for the most part, most people in the Anglosphere are reading the uh, crisis in the United States as, as rooted in history and not as the consequence of change. I do think it is rooted in change, but I don't think that that's that we're conceptualizing it a lot because I think the change is not as fast as some people might think. I mean, the authors talk about the move from a uh, discipline society like Foucault to a control yeah. society. And then also another thing, when they talk about philosophy, what it does is it poses problems and then obviously they shape the solutions. So if we're posing problems in terms of the civil war, then the kind, the conceptual person, so the thing, the, the not the being, but I guess what affects you, what gives you an emotional reaction, is that problematic? So you, I'm thinking, how do you get past that? Do you just have to forget history and, like they say, take each, not look at um, what we're becoming as a move from A to B, but literally every new moment is has becoming inside it. So becoming, so the start, middle, and end. The becoming is inside each separate moment. So then maybe you have to forget about history. It's kind of ahistorical. Because if everything's distinct, you have to look at it things on their own terms. Yeah, there's a clear tension, I think, in this work between history, which is more rooted in the scientific way of approaching things for these guys, and philosophy, which is about the creation of new. So if we are, every time we try to understand possibility looking at history, we're not really doing philosophy. And so in an important sense, if we're, if we're just taking concepts that are passed down to us from previous generations and relitigating them, we're not developing new concepts. We're not being creative or agonistic in the relevant way. And I think in, in both the history of political theory and in contemporary political theory, there's a lot of relitigating old concepts, dead concepts. There's not a whole lot of new in the Anglosphere in particular. I'm not necessarily extending this critique to continental traditions in France, but to, uh, if we look at 
this kind of stuff in the UK or in the United States, there's not a whole lot of new. There's a lot of, of what does liberty mean? What does equality mean? Equality versus equity? What does representation mean? There's a lot of talk about history and which particular periods in history are most like our own. There's a lot of, of even comparing the United States to the Soviet Union. And I, this last week, and this will date when we uh, recorded, but uh, there was a, a senator in the United States who appeared to have some kind of, of a neurological problem while he was talking. He was unable to finish his sentence. Uh, he's older. And people started going, ah, gerontocracy. It's like the Soviet Union. Um, yeah. I think it's a different kind of problem. But yeah, I, I think we're still in this kind of philosophically dead space where although we do have a different kind of problem, we have not really come up with the terms that are necessary to describe it. And to me, when I look at Deleuze and Guattari, I, I don't, part of what I think makes this work difficult is that it's, uh, most of the work is from the 70s. So it's about imagining what might happen if we do go through with having the state back off and open up the flows. And that's something that happened, but not completely happened in a managerial way and didn't have the, uh, yeah, to some degree, this is about you know, just, just where it could go in a philosophical sense. Part of the emphasis of, of philosophy for these guys is that it's not rooted in particular contexts. It's not rooted in evaluating particular societies and where they're going or where they've, they're, what, what is in them. So you don't you know, look at the societies in the 70s and go, what are, do the conditions allow? Because if you do that, you'll be overly rooted in the way of thinking about societies which has existed previously. You just speculate about where things could go. Now, because you're speculating about where things could go, you are always in danger of extrapolating too far away from those conditions. And that's why there's this constant emphasis on, no, no, it's got to still be rooted in some way in empiricism. But do they even have a concept of society or is it, you know, literally... Well, to have a concept of society would be to cut against the difference in proliferation and creativity, right? It would not be a concept of society. It would be, for one, there ought to be many concepts of society. And for two, we shouldn't be bound by the idea of society. Civil society itself is this idea that comes out of you know, liberalism in the, in the 1800s, in the 17 and 1800s. You know, that classical old, old timey liberalism that focused on the capacities of civil society to fill in for the uh, moral upbringing that would not come out of directly out of the state or directly out of the church anymore. This uh, proliferation of multiple different uh, you know, private locuses of development, of building. Uh, that's uh, you know, an, an idea that was posited to solve a particular set of problems a very long time ago. So I think for these guys to focus too much on the concept of society would be to not be sufficiently creative because society is so such an old concept would you would you say literally in this section of not even this section of society well you could say this section of society because society is like a condition of language so you could say here um there is power to, there is a power to do this and this here there is not a power to do this and this I think it would be good to increase the power to do this and this here, but not here. Literally, very, the most particular things ever. So only, only refer to society as like, you know, in the olden days, we used to think of it like this, but based on that, let's move forward by looking at this tiny section and this tiny section and pick what we like and what we don't like. Well, it was, it was during the stretch when these guys were collaborating off and on that Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. Which was very upsetting to many people, in part, I think, because it has become true that there isn't something that resembles civil society in the sense in which people use that term in the 1700s and 1800s. We don't have, to anything like the degree that we used to have, these networks of organizations that organize 
political thinking that involved people getting together in person and having meetings in the real world and making friends and culturally growing together through interaction. We don't have something like that. We have different things now. We have people getting their views from watching television. We have people getting their views from the internet and social media, different kinds of discursive spaces that don't look like traditional civil society. And yet a lot of the time we still have discussions in terms of civil society and in terms of this idea that you know, you've got to have a strong civil society and that civil society is supposed to deliver the revolutionary politics. Yeah, but this is an 1800s, 1900s kind of you know, frame. Uh, part of what was frustrating about Thatcher saying that is that Thatcher was not wrong to say it. And insofar as she was right to say it, it meant that the entire project was no longer rooted in, in the material situation. If there is no longer something, uh, such a thing as society, then it's not possible to achieve change through society in the way that people had previously envisioned. Now, I think it shows how little things have ultimately changed that you can fast forward 40 years after that, and you can hear David Cameron, you know, who was prime minister in the tens, use the expression big society. Right? The big society is the idea that we're going to you know, roll back the public services and the gap will be filled in by charity organizations and the private civil society organizations. But 40 years ago, it was already acknowledged that those organizations no longer perform, if they ever did perform, the function that they were supposed to perform in the 1800s and 1900s. So when David Cameron says, oh, don't worry, we'll have a big society, if, if we have no society, then how can we have a big one? I guess because in the control society, every act, even I guess what you're consuming, is an act of expression or communication to, say, power or to a surveillance or some marketing company that sells your data, anything. So there's no, no, there's no separate act where you're not co communicating with some relay in the network. And because the network's so interlinked now, eventually it's going to link up in some way. Uh, so there's a different word. So initially you said society, you said control society, right? Mm -hmm. So use that concept again. Then you used a word like network. Rhizome he uses, yeah. Right. Right. Now that's a different concept network. And it's a very internet concept. It's not the concept that you would have used in the 70s to talk about this. It's a different word. No, you do networking, I guess, in the 70s. Yeah, well, we... But would you have called it networking in the 70s? I don't know. This actually. is a, a real question, and I'm not actually entirely certain about that. that it, I would have to look it up. Uh, but I don't think that we used the idea of a network nearly as much. I think it kind of came out of STEM, and then we got the internet. And what is the internet? Well, you couldn't say that the internet is a society. What is it? It's a network. So then the, it being a network becomes this social metaphor right? This, we, we begin to project networkness onto all sorts of other things. And in doing that, we suggest that they're like the internet. The internet is something that s seems to grow beyond the particular contributions that people make to it. It is not reducible to what goes on within it. And in, in that way, the internet is a, a bit like society, but the internet is also different from society in that it's more atomized in the way that it, it draws on uh, input. It's not as if there are a bunch of little clubs. I mean, there was a time when you thought the internet might be something like that. There were message boards, there are subreddits, there were Facebook groups, but the internet has continuously gotten less like that. It's continuously gotten less like society and more like something else where you have an algorithm that just throws stuff in front of you. On Twitter, you're not in some kind of group that where you all get together and because you're in a group. I mean, you could try to set this up with, with who you follow, right? You can try to follow the, only the people you want to see and they can follow the people that, uh, they can follow you back and you can have a little bit of a reply guy thing going where you uh, interact with each other a lot more than you inter interact with outsiders. But the For You feed on Twitter, the For You feed is a feed that is algorithm-based and not based on who you follow. 
And the tendency with these social networks is to get away from you picking who you get to associate with in this old fashioned civil society sense and moving you toward a situation where an algorithm decides who you're going to see. And the algorithm is based on your previous behavior. If we look at the newest stuff in this space, like TikTok or Instagram Reels or Threads, which doesn't have any kind of, you have no control over the feed in, in Threads, the new Facebook alternative to Twitter. Uh, you have no control over what appears in the feed. You have no real ability. Apart, you know, your following is, is not actually you following an account. It's you telling the algorithm, I like this kind of thing. And then the algorithm gives you a feed that only occasionally actually includes the person that you followed, but mostly just uses that as an input to construct your feed for you. But the feed comes out of the network. It's emergent. It's not based on you making decisions about who you want to associate with. And you, you could imagine, and indeed this was the case, in the 1900s, you could decide who you wanted to associate with, and you could decide who you didn't want to associate with. So you could say, I don't want my kid to read these books, or I don't want my kid to be around these people. And you could just physically keep those books away and keep those people away. But if you are on the internet in the way that people are now on the internet, there's flows of information and accounts and content that are not something that you as a particular person can control. And if you think about yourself as in some way produced by the flows of content that you consume, who you are is no longer something that you have any way of controlling. It used to be that the private individual, you know, could be the head of a family and then decide what kinds of experiences the kids have, what they read, who they meet, where they go. You can't do any of that now. And when parents who are, or grandparents who are of a certain age try to imagine that it works like that, that they can control what their kid sees or doesn't see or who they meet or who they talk to, uh, the, the internet makes a mockery of that idea. Okay, but in the 1800s, if you decided not to read that book, what else would you read? If you have enough people to associate with, or if you didn't like the people, you couldn't move to another area. So there's still a same. Yes. So you were even more territorialized then in the sense that in the 1800s, you, if you lived in the wrong place, you just couldn't get access to a lot of stuff. And we still talk about this now. It's still the case that people go, oh, you know, if you live in London, you get all these new experiences. There are all these things that you, will happen and your life will be full of stuff going on. You'll bump into people, you'll meet people, you'll have these experiences because you live in London. But if you live in the middle of Wales, you won't have those experiences. And there's still a, some level of truth to that, but the gap has been narrowed considerably by the internet. Right? It used to be that a, a big part of being, say, a Cambridge student was physically going to Cambridge. And COVID is the you know, ultimate example of, of the degree to which this has dissipated, that you could have all of the Cambridge students go home and continue to be students at Cambridge without actually interacting with each other face-to-face -face, or being in the same spot or mixing or being in clubs or societies. I think the university to some degree still substantially misleads people about the character of society because universities are still places where there are a bunch of clubs and people can meet and associate with each other in old-fashioned ways that are largely not there for most people anymore, that have increasingly gone away. And COVID, in exposing the university student to the atomization that is felt by most people in society, gave the university student a confrontation with the real at a time that in, in an a person's life that they usually don't get that confrontation. The university is usually a protracted period of protection from the real, where you can be at a bunch of clubs and you can make a bunch of friends. And then when you leave the university, all of the stuff that you've made is constantly eroded. The friendships that you make erode, the clubs or societies you were in, you know, you, you might try to still be part of or still be connected to in some way, the fraternities or sororities if you're in the States. Uh, but these things, these connections erode. People try to stay part of it by becoming fans of their college sports team, or they become uh, donors to their old alma mater. They try to feel like they're still part of it. But the university experience is a kind of strange period where you're thrust into something like an 1800 civil society situation. You know, it's like all of a sudden for a little while being thrown into Paris in the 1800s if you're at a university that's sufficiently interesting. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, you're, you're in 
you can go to the salon, you can go and, and meet with people and have these discussions. Then all of that is ripped away from you and your experience of that kind of life is, is taken away. You are shuffled off into the workforce and life becomes totally different. It's a big part of why so many university students want to live in cities after they graduate, because in the city, they can still get little bits and pieces of this. You, know, you Especially if you go to London after you graduate from an Oxbridge, you, know, you can become a member of one of those clubs, you know, the Oxford and Cambridge Club, and you can have a club that you go to and, and associate with people. But this is not the dominant experience. Society is uh, a luxury for a, a certain class of people now, which is what it has always tended to be to varying degrees. But I think there was a, a, a dream that this experience of society could be opened up to everyone and everyone could participate in civil society organizations and, and be spiritually or morally uplifted by their participation in them. And that was A, something which never extended to everybody. B, those organizations never worked as well as they were made out to work. And C, now they're going away rapidly. What about certain workplaces? Are you saying that certain classes of workplace allow for that? Because just there's more people in one area, like business parks, corporate areas of cities, as opposed to most jobs where you don't meet that many people outside your work and you have to commute in to a particular area. Yeah, yeah. Sparsely populated. There, that's, yeah, that's changed. You know, business park is something which still puts people together geographically in an area. Of course, specific trade organizations too, like labor unions or uh, professional societies that hold conferences that are physical where people get together and they meet and they talk about their trade. Those are things that have something of this feeling of society to them. But I think, yeah, all of those things are declining and becoming less accessible to narrower slices of the population. And that's the sense in which there's no such thing as society rings true. The kinds of organizations that existed, they are shrinking. The variety of types, the number of people who can join an organization of that type, and instead, we're organizing social interaction differently. We're doing it through apps. We're doing it through algorithms that put people together who would not have put themselves together. And also, our ability to go into a, a physical in-person place and meet people without the help of an algorithm is atrophying. It's very difficult now to for people who are younger to go into a club or go into a bar or go into a, uh, you know, some meeting area and strike up a conversation with somebody new without first the app putting them together. First, the app has to say, ah, you've been matched. Ah, this is someone you should talk to. Your own ability to evaluate who you should talk to is atrophies in this situation. You are trusting the app to decide who you should meet and who you should talk to. The app puts the connection in front of you and, and you uh, go along with it or you don't. Instead of you coming into a space or you picking a space, you know, if you come to university, you, you know, what you would do is decide, these are the clubs and societies I'm going to try, and I'm going to meet people in these environments. And I think if I go to these spaces, I'm likely to meet the right people. You come into that space, and you see the people who are there, and you have to decide, uh, this is the person I want to ask for coffee, uh, and this person I don't want to ask you know, out for a drink, uh, but this person I do. And you have to make these, these decisions and pick who you're going to be exposed to, but with networks and it doesn't work like that. You don't really have any kind of control over what you're exposed to. And therefore, you don't really have any kind of control over who you become insofar as we are the result of relations. And for this reason, whatever identity that you have is, is really fungible and has nothing really to do with you. It's something that is uh, suggested for you or imposed onto you by the particular sets of experiences that are flung at you by these flows and by these networks. So it goes deeper than just the fact that you can search for anything nowadays, because even the, the what you think as, oh, I, when I think I'm going to search for anything, then you'll think of maybe five options. Are you saying that those five options are already structured by so many other things that we can't even see? So what we think is a free choice is actually all of our capacity to think of different alternatives is structured by something 
we can't tell. Right. If you think about an algorithm, you know, whether it's the Google search algorithm or the Facebook algorithm or the Twitter algorithm, that algorithm can be loaded in ways that make it much more likely that you'll see certain kinds of things than other kinds of things. If you do a Google search and Google has an algorithm that promotes co content that comes from large corporations and pushes down content that comes from independent uh, websites because the independent websites Google regards as less trustworthy. Well, you're much less likely to see those independent websites. And that makes it much more difficult for you to choose what you're exposed to. The internet gives you a sense that you can choose to be exposed to anything. And I think in the early days of the internet, it was more like that. You could join a message board or today, to some degree, you can join a subreddit where people are interested in something really weird. And by participating in that kind of space, you can become weird with those other people and you can go into your, your rabbit hole and, and carve out your little world. Increasingly, however, that behavior is problematized and we are instead having uh, an internet where that kind of stuff is obstructed by these large social media companies, large tech companies, which increasingly structure these spaces. And I, I would say that's a re-territorialization of the internet. But it's, it's, uh, you could also think of it as a change in general in how we interact. Now, all of this has been kind of suggesting that the internet is this profound change, but I, I don't necessarily think it is. It, it is, but it isn't. There are certain things that the internet has changed profoundly, but when we actually look at politics, I think there's less change than people realize, uh, you know, versus 30 years ago. People make it out like there's, there's so much change because we have these you know, internet-driven politicians. The internet was completely ignored politically until 2016. And then after 2016, people made it out like the internet completely paradigm shifted everything. Neither view is true. The internet was, of course, going to matter. It was never the case that the internet was going to be unimportant. But there are still lots of fundamental economic imperatives that exist post-2016 that existed pre-2016 that structure the way states make decisions. It's not as if the fact that people are on the internet all of a sudden makes all of that literature about political economy pre-2016 irrelevant or unimportant. Because ultimately what we are doing is not just playing around with ideas. We are trying to have an economy that is functional and is con consistent with legitimating some form of state of affairs. Which is what? Creating surplus? Well, it creates enough surplus for us to have something like the form of society that we're used to. Of course, it changes all the time what's possible, but something that isn't too discombobulating for us. And if you rapidly change the economy really quickly, then you do have something that's very discombobulating and, and causes a lot of, of frustration and, and unease. And that more fundamentally is the thing that is sticky. It's not uh, where we talk, how we talk. There's too much emphasis in general on, on the talking. Even though they're not really materialist, or are they? I guess, because they look at what's actually... I'm not necessarily saying by Deleuze and Guattari, there's I'm saying there's too much emphasis on talking just in our contemporary political conversation. As we start to do theorists that are closer to now, we're doing more contemporary stuff recently than we have done historically. It results in me making more comments that are not about the theorist and more about the conditions or the circumstances that we're in, because we're getting very close to talking about when we do Deleuze and Guattari, we are close enough to talking about now that I end up talking about now a lot. Similar kind of thing happened with the, the UBI episode that we did, where I end up talking about now a lot. It's part of why I like to do the older stuff. It gets me further away from now. <laughs> but maybe that's not something I should let myself lapse into. And you don't want us to talk as much. You want us to just act in certain ways. So... I'll say you, sorry. It's a bit, it's a bit of pressure because it's like asking you to give an alternative vision, but you know, I well, suppose I do. 
I do think for us to act, we would need to have something that we wanted to bring about. I think part of what is frustrating for me about agonism is that agonism values the action, but agonism, because it doesn't take fully seriously the reasons why people act uh, as valuable in their own sake, because it values the, the conflict rather than the things that the people in the conflict value. There is a tendency for agonism, if taken too far, to erode the conditions under which it can occur. Agonism can only happen if we care about specific things that are fixed, at least in our minds. You know, if nobody has a sense that some states of affairs are better or worse than others, then they have nothing to struggle over. So I think that ultimately, if we take a kind of Nietzschean perspective too far, it becomes quietist and it becomes creativity killing. Because if we are only valuing the struggle for its own sake, it just eats its own tail and becomes meaningless. And, and you get a kind of void. And that's a lot of more contemporary theory, I think, is either stuck trying to reproduce stuff from the past or stuck in a void where it's not able to say, okay, well, what should we do? And without a what should we do, there's an insufficient motivation to actually struggle. At least my we can still see plenty of struggling now, though, in, in terms of just cultural you know, people screaming at each other. So it's not as if uh, I'm completely right to say that there's a, a total withering of any kind of struggle or antagonism. There's still antagonism in our culture. But I don't know how robustly political that is at this point. And I think more and more people are getting exhausted by it and just dropping out. Anything else before we go? No, not really. All right. Well, we're over the hour, so we'll wrap up. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.